Welcome to the Dog Trainers Podcast. A podcast created by dog trainers, for dog trainers, or anyone who's ever fallen in love with man's best friend. Hey everybody, welcome back and thank you so much for listening to the Dog Trainers Podcast. Mariano Alvarez here with Brent Labrada and a very special guest we'll announce in just a second. But first, of course, we do want to give some shout outs to the people that have been showing us love on Instagram. We appreciate you guys. We thank you guys. And let's give some shout outs to Nature in Play, Sit Happens, Gun Dogs, Reunion Rescue, and Art of the Mutt. Thank you again. And with that, over to you, Brent. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back. Uh, this is a very special episode that we actually needed your guys' help on on social media. Um, you know, as as the Dog Trainers podcast, we get a lot of uh, people asking for mentorship, and it's one of the, our most favorite things to do. Um, and sometimes they ask us questions that we just feel unqualified to answer. So uh, one of one of my mentees, uh, she asked us me a couple questions about contracts and liabilities, and she asked me to look through one of her contracts that she had and she ended up sending me like this nine page thing that I, I just in my mind I was just like wow that's gonna be so intimidating for someone who just wants to do a group class you know what I mean <laughs> and so I said you know what we're not specialists in this so I reached out to my network of clients and we got connected with a really awesome attorney his name is Paul Slattery uh, and so without further ado we'd like to introduce you guys to Paul how you doing Paul I do well. How are you guys? Doing Very well, good. man. We really appreciate you jumping on with us. Um, I would. I, we can't wait for you to enlighten us a little bit because, as you know, like uh, you spent a lot of time in law school, um, and I know that stuff wasn't easy. And uh, as to the layman, law liability. You know, especially living in California, which is like a like a easy to get sued state. Um, it, it, it's 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 one of those things like we need to know how to protect ourselves. We need to know how to defend ourselves. We need to know at least as a, a, just a passionate dog trainer, either taking care of someone's dog, uh, all the way up to owning a dog training business, all the way to you know just just trying to help people but not get you know bitten bitten the ass a little bit later. Like we sure. we can't wait to ask you some of these questions. Um, so let's go ahead and start, I guess, with our first question. What do you, what's the first one, Mariano? So we figured what better way to start than to have a bit of an understanding of Paul's background and where this perspective is coming from. So if we could, let's, let's learn a little bit about what you do. Sure. Uh, so I've been practicing for about 11 years. Uh, the first eight of them were at Quinn, Emanuel, Urquhart and Sullivan. Uh, which is just an, an enormous law firm uh, that's all over the world. And I wound up doing uh, exclusively litigation there, so mm. trial work. Uh, and I did, uh, you know, like the three largest lawsuits in history to go to trial in a row, uh, mm. which, is a, which is a clue to why I got tired enough to move on. Uh, but I also, <laughs> I, I, also did, I also did some fun things. I repossessed Joan Fontaine's Oscar statuette and... Represented the Academy, represented the Academy when they threw out Roman Polanski and moved to Dubai for a month and a half for a trial and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And then from there, I had had enough. It was wonderful, but I didn't need more. Uh, And I went on to become the general counsel of a psychedelic pharmaceutical company. So that's the lead in-house lawyer. Uh, And that's that's not the sort of gray area, you know, like pot is federally illegal, but state legal. No, this was all like FDA trials, all federally regulated. Uh, developing psychedelic products for depression and other psychiatric indications. So that's sort of, those are the two parts of my experience. Very cool. So I I guess my next question becomes, 
those sound like very specific, very specialized portions of the world of law. I know it's very vast, and I know that attorneys definitely make it clear all the time. Like, listen, I do this, not necessarily that. What what would be a rough percentage, you think, of like, as an attorney who focuses on this, I still think I can give a friend general helpful advice as an overall versus like the layman? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm a generalist lawyer. I'm happy to speak to the kind of general contours of the law. Um, I'm I'm not giving legal advice here, and nothing I say can form an attorney-client relationship or anything like that. And I should encourage people, you know, if you if there's something you're worried about, uh, seek legal advice. You should contact or retain an attorney. Uh, and one of the things I learned through this is there are actually a lot of folks out there uh, who are working in dog bite law or you know anyone uh, in small business law who's used to small businesses with some risks right um, can be helpful folks you know there are folks who represent climbing gyms right or mm-hmm. people who give instruction in skateboarding um, and the sort of inherently risky activity small business kind of stuff uh, they should be able to help you perfect so I guess, so I guess. The, the next question becomes then what is the purpose what is the benefit of having a training contract yeah, sure. I, so there, there are at least two purposes. Um, I think folks, you know, Brent, you talked about this a little bit. Folks are just kind of intimidated by contracts and the yeah. law and, oh, I have to avoid liability. And it seems so complicated in California. Uh, so the first purpose of a contract isn't really about any of that, right? It's just it's an opportunity to be clear about the services that you will and you won't offer and your prices and your boundaries and you know, the sort of overwhelming, like vast, vast majority of contracts. Uh, never wind up in disagreement, let alone in a court. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the contract was sort of pointless or not important. Uh, mm-hmm. People, people have a real gift for interpreting you know, advertising or your casual conversations, promoting yourself to mean all kinds of things right? mm-hmm. about what results you do or don't guarantee what kind of whatever you, you seem chill. Therefore, I think that you are going to tolerate me being tardy all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Or it seems like a nice person totally going to be open to, you know, um, staying open late in, in case I, I run over time at work. Uh, and a contract is an opportunity to kind of set all that straight in one document and go, no, this is this is the actual deal. No matter what inferences you're you're trying to draw um, from my poster advertising my services. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, a contract is actually just a good business practice. Right. It's writing down the basics of what you'd agreed to, um, which is an opportunity to not have misunderstandings later. Uh, it's also for a business, uh, just an important record, right? It's a, you then have a written form of everything that client asked for, which can be helpful for you, right? You may forget exactly if you, uh, Brent, I noticed you have quite a big batch of services. If people were just telling you that off the cuff, retaining that is tough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing it does is, you know, say there's no contract and a client thinks they asked for some kind of service and they've already Venmoed you and your recollection is they didn't. Well, now you have a disagreement. Mm-hmm. But if you have a contract that has tick boxes next to the services, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. just pull up the contract and go, listen, you didn't request that. You see how it's an extra 20 bucks a session. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to add that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and having the contract as sort of good boundaries makes that go a lot smoother. And the other thing is, frankly, if you have a clear contract, a client who's mad at you is less likely to come after you. I think we've all done that and gotten mm-hmm. like very angry at some service provider or something. And we really feel like we're right. And then go on and look back at the contract and gone, Oh, Damn I, it. I'm, I'm completely wrong. Right. And then, yeah. and then you don't start a fight. Um, before I move on to sort of the second purpose of contracts, which is the legalese and the things you're thinking of. 
that first part, the just being clear with people, uh, should determine a bit of how you sort of format and style the contract, right? We're all used mm-hmm. to skimming mm-hmm. through contracts and skipping lots of like arbitration clause. Yeah. Yeah. You know, governing law. We're all used to skimming through that. Um, but even if you look at like a, whatever, a Verizon contract or something, there will be things that are big and bold mm-hmm. that they want you to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that, right? Certainly your prices and the services you're offering. Uh, but if people are constantly ignoring your 48 hour cancellation window, don't yeah. bury that down in the fine print. Put that in bold further up. What are the, you know? It's your business. You know the things that that bug you a lot. Mm-hmm. Don't be shy about moving. However, you want to handle that up and highlighting it. Um, so your your customers, when they're skimming through, go, "Oh, I have to read that." You know, Can and then you communicate it. A yeah, quick question on that. <clears throat> yeah, would you more or less create the hierarchy of what goes in what order in a contract based on either biggest or most common issues? Yeah, so the normal way to do it is they're sort of the core terms um, that are the basics of the deal um, that are what this, well, I say normal way to do this. When you do a 500-page merger contract, it's all inscrutable, right? right. But for, <laughs> for, 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 most, for most customer contracts, kind of up at the top, and think of think of your cable contract or your phone contract, right? It's like, here's the service, here are the prices and all of that. Um, and then lots of folks, and I like doing this, put sort of important because they come up a lot are important mm-hmm. because you want to communicate them like the cancellation policy, right? Mm-hmm. These important practical things, um, put those higher up, right? And they may put, uh, the key ones in bold or whatever else to highlight them. And then, you know, the two paragraph long limitation of liability can go further down. Right. right? Um, but just to be clear, there's no magic way to do it, right? It's not, there's no, um, Oh, this is, this is special in a different form of communication because it's law. I do it how, how it's practical, um, which is, you know, customers probably going to look at the basic services and price and then those core disclosures. But don't feel like, oh, no, I've switched the order of two provisions that through some magic of law that's going to create mm-hmm. a lot of different meaning. It, it's not like that. It's not that so it's kind of like what like what will help clear communication or like get your yeah. clear points across. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, that's uh, just a, just a, I'm, I'm telling on myself is – uh, I sent you my business contract or my service contract, yeah. and one of my motivations was to get everything to fit on one page. Sure. <laughs> and and, and uh, after listening or, and then having several conversations with you off air, it just kind of makes me want to revisit my own contract and uh, and and make it more obvious and to the point and all that stuff. So you know, I've been doing this 15 years, and even then. Like this is, I'm a student right now. Like this is so cool to be able to sit down with you and ask questions. So, yeah, it's the and there are you know Google does things like that, right? Like make it make it one page, mm-hmm. um, and that shorter is better because it's more likely to be read as long as it still has the content, right? Of course, yeah. And then when you when you're doing that, trying to make it simple, you start looking at losing content, and that's so. I mean, as condensed as you can, and still get get what you need, which is obviously a balance, you know. I, I just want to make a general point. Um, for listeners, something that I notice is it's interesting how you kind of learn lessons in different facets of business. Mm-hmm. And an example of that to, to our point right now is uh, I streamlined a lot of the services that I offer and I found that it made the workflow and things just simpler for the operation that we run here in Phoenix. And it allowed me to see how thin I was spreading my staff partially when I updated my contract 
and there were stipulations for grooming and for this and for that and for daycare. And I was like, you know, it, it just does, do I even need to offer this? Like when you see it all on paper in one document and, and it gave me opportunity to, to look in, you know, perspective wise, like, well, what do I do? I'm a dog trainer. What do I want to do? What do I want to be known for? Quality dog training. Can people get their clients or their dogs groomed elsewhere? Can I maybe just refer and build a network that way? And that helped me shorten all that out and kind of, you know, eliminate what I just don't think we need to offer. And then I just get rid of it on the website. So looking at the contract helped me through like reverse osmosis kind of streamline my business model. Yeah, sure. I mean, it can look a little bit like a Chinese restaurant, right? Yeah, absolutely. How are they <laughs> yeah. offering all of that? How is this possible? Yeah, right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so sorry to cut you off, but I, I know that we were... There's a we second. Were, there's a second, yeah, oh, yeah, the second so the, major the point. Second, this, so the second point of, of having a contract is all the things you're thinking about, right? Limitation of liability, um, being clear about what warranties you do and don't offer. I wouldn't offer many when you know working with a third party that's an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but just all the stuff people usually think about in contracts. I just want people to think about it also in terms of clear communication and avoiding conflict. Right, which is how the vast, vast majority of con- contracts actually operate. Right, mm-hmm. there's usually no fight; it doesn't wind up in court. And so it is for that too, but mm-hmm. it's also just a document passing between you and a client, setting up expectations. Yep, got it. So, if we if we look at a contract then, as less of less of a conflicted, less of like this this like stick that you kind of wield in order to fend off you know, like, like lawsuit, something that I noticed when, you know, th- this document that you sent us spoke a lot about best practices. And I actually think focusing on best practices is something I'd really like to talk with you more about, because I'd love to get your thoughts on not only like what are best practices maybe for an attorney, but what is an attorney's perspective on best practices for dog trainers? Because I feel like that's one of those things that from an employer's perspective, when you're teaching new trainers and new staff, Best practices is a really great, strong starting point to build off of. Can we riff on best practices a little bit? Yeah, sure. And and so the way it comes up from the perspective of, you know, you ask some questions about dog bites and liability and things like that. So the way it mm-hmm. comes up from the perspective of a lawyer there um, is in the standard of negligence, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which I, we can talk more broadly about best practices, but I think it's important to get this out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just driving your car or doing some lay activity, the standard of negligence is the care a reasonable person would exercise in the circumstances, right? So would a, would a reasonable person drive their car that way? And then would they react to somebody being in the wrong lane that way? Or was that an, un, you know, that's the lower standard of care than a normal reasonable person would exercise. Mm-hmm. That in the circumstances part at the end of that phrasing is important um, when you get into professions, right? Things that have best practices, things that have standards, things where... Well, what's going on right now, right? You have a podcast where you're sharing sort of best practices, the best way to do it, advice on how to be a dog trainer, right? So there are, within the community of people who are skilled in this art, um, there's some agreement on, you know, in medicine, they call it a standard of care, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what's the sort of, what's the basics? Like, you got to always do this stuff. Um, And that, in a specialized field, becomes the standard of negligence, right? Mm -hmm. So you could switch it to... um, what kind of care would a skilled, reasonable dog trainer have exercised in this situation, which may be different than what your grandma would do with a dog um, that she'd heard has bitten before and has some behavioral problems, right? Um, so it does, best practices does play into, into law. 
Um, but this is now putting on my sort of general counsel hat. If you're training new people, um, it's important to have a good training manual for them, right? Mm-hmm. Look at pl- look at places where other dog trainers have had things go wrong in the past, and like, mm-hmm. what are your sort of I don't know, evasive maneuvers or precautionary procedures, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, and I don't, you guys would know a lot better than me, right? How many dogs out of a kennel at once? Mm-hmm. How long, how long does a new dog spend just getting acclimated uh, to their new environment before you start working with them at all without risking, you know, getting a negative reaction out of them just because they're jazzed right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there are probably a lot of things like that in, in the industry where, you know, um, experienced folks all do them the same way. And you're trying to share that. And that's making sure you communicate those to new trainers and know that, you know, if something went wrong, um, really wrong, right, and wound up in a lawsuit, um, then part of the fight over the standard of negligence might be two expert witnesses who are experienced dog trainers, you know, mm-hmm. um, with one going, oh, my God, I would never, no one would ever do that. And the other one going, we do it all the time. Right? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then the fact finder has to sort it out. Right. Um, but yeah, communicating best practices is really important. Not only are they a standard of negligence, it just makes your business run more smoothly. And figuring out a training program that communicates the key ones, with that, it's a little bit like the contract, right? Like, what are the core ones mm-hmm. versus what are sort of aspirational or we think it works better or this is part of our style and making yeah. sure those come across? That's awesome. And, and, and the reason I, I bring that up right off the bat is because similar to what I was talking about with how going through your contract can help you streamline and focus on what your core principles and and mission is as a business. I feel like looking at things through the lens of a best practice of a professional, because you're basically saying there's tiers to expectations, best practice of an individual versus best practice of a professional dog trainer who takes money for these services. It, it allows, I think a really strong basis. And I guess I just want to say this for listeners. If you, if you keep, the best practices in mind as a professional, that higher tier of expectation when training new people mixed with the expectation that you have as an educator, as an employer, to be able to communicate these practices clearly and efficiently so that they understand what these things are, be it, you know, with a manual and, and, and bringing them aside and explaining to them. because a lot of teaching for trainers is hands on. I just want to make sure people understand that it's it's sometimes very beneficial to look at your teaching style as a traditional, the way you normally do it day to day, teaching people new things, but also maybe sit down one day, write out what those best practices are, and then that'll have that'll help you think a different way. Like it's that quote: when you change the way you th- look at something, the thing that you look at changes, right? And then you can kind of reverse engineer and teach from an angle that maybe you didn't see prior. Mm. Writing helps a lot. There's a, I had a professor, and he definitely stole this, uh, but he. <laughs> <laughs> he he used to say there is no thinking except in the writing and there is no writing except in the rewriting. And if you, and you see this in law all the time when you sit someone down, you know, they have their story and how they would tell it over a beer or something and you sit them down and tell them, write out what happened. You know, I don't know when you visited your sister at the elder care place, like all the Mm -hmm. things and it crystallizes for them what, what really matters. Um, Mm -hmm. what doesn't, Mm -hmm. Right, you'd be surprised what sort of flows and seems important to you while writing and not. So even if it's just journaling to yourself, what are your best practices? Well, given given in the field of of law, I know it's similar in dog training in that there are tiers, there are levels, and there are attorneys that find themselves in, I guess, more prestigious positions than others, right? And it sounds like you found yourself in very prestigious positions, and and I'd like to know within the field of law and within the level, like the general level of, of understanding that you all have to have. What are those niche differences? Was it your ability to communicate? Was it your ability to write? What helped you scale 
personally? I, you know, luck. I don't know. <laughs> um, Being now, ridiculously good looking. That's right. Yeah, no. It's, Ladies, just, watch it I, on YouTube. You know what I'm they, talking about. They brought me to trial just as the eye candy, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, like most things, a lot of it is grind, right? A lot of it is just commitment to it, um, to thinking about it a lot, to spending a lot of time on it. Um, and then it is clear communication and writing and clear thinking. And it's, you know, it's a weird field because it's one of the few where there's a huge amount of precision, um, Mm -hmm. that is not quantitative. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's unusual. I'm around a lot of investment bankers and stuff who are extremely precise, but, uh, you know, discrete, concrete, numerical things, their assumptions and modeling and all that mm-hmm. um, are a little bit easier to be precise with. And in law, you have to be really precise mm-hmm. with an imprecise tool, which is language. Um, mm-hmm. So I think just being good at that. Okay. Okay. But, but that's, that's good advice, I think, is to be precise with an imprecise tool because you were talking earlier about the importance of basically not overselling or not yes. misleading. And so... Precision with an imprecise tool. And and I think, I'm sure you've felt this already because you've worked with many people within these within these organizations. Part of the imprecision of language is everyone's interpretation is different. So do you ever find as an attorney that you have to do what trainers do where I've got my one message and I've got my one point or my three points that I need to get across to you, but you communicate differently than my client an hour ago. So I've got to, I've got to say it in a different way. Yeah, that's right. And it's, in drafting a contract, it, you want to make it pretty airtight, right? So there right. aren't there aren't other interpretations. But yeah, there's a lot of adapting to communication style. Um, and I will say, uh, I've done a lot of litigation in California, including uh, for businesses that are consumer facing. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to get in trouble is to make statements that can be at all misleading, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's true whether it's about yourself, you know, your qualifications, your mm-hmm. services. Um, or what you anticipate your services delivering. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit uh, on, mm-hmm. on warranties and things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it helps to be a, li- a little conservative in what you promise and how you promote yourself to the extent you're being concrete, right? You can aspire. You, know, you can say, all right, we, we hope to create the best dog ever, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, we're going to create the best dog ever is like, well, that's an affirmative claim now that somebody's relying on, and it could be misleading if it doesn't wind up being the best dog ever. Yeah, of course, right. of course. Well, let's do this. Let's before we take a commercial break. Let's just kind of recap what we what we went over, um, just for the listener before the break. Um, so, just the first reason that we have contracts and and fill in any blanks that I miss sure. is just to create a, a conversation with the client. Like this is what we're going to offer. This is what I expect from you. Uh, this is how much it's going to cost. Like it's it's creating an agreement between the two of us of services provided and what we expect from them. And that's one thing a lot of dog trainers forget guys, we can expect things from our clients and that needs to be in, uh, in our uh, agreements, right? Because we know in the, in the dog training space, it's kind of like a teacher, like a teacher can't guarantee that the kid's going to go to Harvard. You know what I mean? Like the parents have a part in that play in that as well. So there needs to be, this uh, this expectation that is set out. Um, what else am I missing? Want to help help me? Yeah. Well, what, what and and remember, what it's not just sort of price and services and all that. Uh-huh. But you you run your business. You go through this day to day. What's what are the biggest pains in your butt? 
right? Mm-hmm. What is this? Mm-hmm. People ignoring your cancellation policy? Okay, yeah. move that up. Make it bold, right? Mm-hmm. If it's mm-hmm. they have to be there by a certain time, yeah. you know, make those very clear. It's an opportunity, and that protects your time, right? And that protects your it protects you from annoyance, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of clear communication. And thinking of the contract as a way to do that. Well, and and also what I would add to that is. Uh, I think one of the hardest things newer dog trainers have a problem with is how do we maintain respect in relationships? So like what I see a lot is newer dog trainers act as a service provider, but more as like the way, like a low status service provider, like, like not an authority figure, not someone who has expertise, not someone, you know what I mean? So it's easy for us to fall into that. And just the way that the, the nature of how humans make relationships, if I have boundaries that you respect and you have boundaries that I respect, then we're going to get along a lot better, like as equals, right? Or it's going to be a lot easier for me as the specialist to slip into an authority position in that relationship. And just by us having these clear boundaries or setting these clear rules and then enforcing those rules, sometimes that, like I've seen clients that, you know, I show up to their house and uh, they didn't do any of their homework. And I go, why didn't you just call me? And I said, listen, normally I'm supposed to charge you at this time. Um, I have two options. Uh, I can leave and this will be your one pass, right? Do your homework. If you don't do your homework next time, call me and extend the lesson, but don't waste my time and don't waste your session. Or number two, we can go over what we went over last week and, um, and, and I'm going to charge you. And then they go, okay, you can leave. Thanks for the pass. You're so kind. And then from that point on, they bust their ass. You know, with that dog, they do her homework every single week. And that may allowed me to maintain my authority position with them as, as the, the one leading them to this goal. Um, and that was in my contract, right? Now it's in my contract. So that's really helpful. Okay. So anything else we're missing, at least on that first point. Nope. Okay. So second thing, if I'm clear is other reasons for contracts are to, for liability purposes. So waiving liability, um, fill, fill in the, the points because there's sure. I, so yeah. for all the things people think of, right? So limiting liability, being clear about um, what happens in the event of a dispute. If you want to have mm-hmm. um, a provision with respect to attorney's fees um, and just sort of all the nitty gritty, right? Like who's responsible for veterinarian bills um, if the dog gets one. sick in your care? Mm-hmm. Um, all, all that kind of stuff. What, what warranties, what do you promise? Hopefully not very much because you're working with a third party dog, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's where you would limit that. Um, and if it's boarding or whatever, you know, sort of the additional points there, right? Like making them disclose whether, and we'll talk about this, whether the dog has ever bit anyone or been in trouble mm-hmm. with an, with an authority. Cause then them telling you or not telling you makes a difference. And mm-hmm. you knowing that makes a difference. And we talked about your standard of care. You know, it's it's different if it's a puppy golden retriever versus, you know, this is my pit bull who's on his last strike here, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. what's reasonable for you to do out in public or around other dogs. That's amazing. All right, great. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and take a quick commercial break, and then we'll hop back on uh, with attorney Paul Slattery. We'll see you guys soon. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Dog Trainers Podcast. You know what's a great way to support this podcast? By becoming a sponsor today. With sponsoring the podcast, you'd be helping us make this show the best it can be and so much more. From hosting more local events, traveling throughout the country, and connecting with trainers from around the world. Ultimately getting you, the listener, more of the content that you love. For more information, please contact us at dogtrainerspodcast at gmail.com. 
or visit our Instagram page at Dog Traders Podcast. Thank you guys, and now back to the show. All right, guys, thanks again so much for listening to the Dog Trainers Podcast. Now, this is an interview with an attorney friend, Mr. Paul Slattery. Now, just before we went on break, we were talking about the importance, the two major important points of having a training contract. So what we want to discuss coming right back into this is what are some recommended stipulations to have in a general dog training contract? Well, before, sure. before we get oh, into that, real quick, Paul, do you have a dog? Oh yeah, I, I've had a dog continuously since I was seven. Um, and what I what I what I did this morning actually was drop uh, drop my current remaining live dog off for radiotherapy because he had oh. um, yeah he had a mast cell tumor he had it removed uh, and it was mm-hmm. low grade but it's mm-hmm. not completely gone and they can't take more tissue so that's that's actually oh. what I did with my morning. Um, but wow. yeah, I have you... portraits of like all eight dogs from my life that are hand painted up on the it's yeah it's a thing in my life. Oh, I that's feel good. you, man. Well, I, that's... I had a, Go ahead. I had a pity named Simba who I've had for years, and I loved him. And and uh, he recently had a similar issue, and and I had to have him put down maybe like six, seven months ago. I know your dog's not, but it w- it was the exact same problem where he had had some tumors, and I had had them removed. But of course, they begin to grow in areas where you can't quite cut around it as much as you need to, and then that becomes yep. an issue in itself. Yep. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm sorry, man. I I lost one who was 18 years old. Um, wow. yeah, he was a little a runt. Child. He was a little runt pity. He just wouldn't he just went on forever. Wow, eighteen year old pity, that's amazing. Yeah, he was tiny he was some sort of tiny I mean he was probably half bear. I don't know what he was. He was, <laughs> he was, he was, he was like a little goblin creature, but uh, yeah. yeah. Four or five months ago. So it's funny because yeah. you say goblin creature pity mix, and everybody listening knows exactly what yeah. you mean. <laughs> no, yeah. We've all seen that dog. <laughs> now he just got grayer and more skeletal as he aged and looked like oh. more of a goblin. And yeah. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a dog lover, and that's uh, yes. so that 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 just kind of adds to all of this. So we really appreciate all your help. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. So, right. what are some recommended stipulations to have in a general dog training contract? Sure. So I think the. One thing to keep in mind is what kinds of disagreements most often come up, um, and then sort of what are what are rarer ones, but that would be more catastrophic. So you got to speak to them. Um, at first, I would think the, one of the most common disagreements is just people uh, not wanting to pay because they don't see the improvements they mm. you know they aspired for in their dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I you know I would include something along the lines a, a limitation of warranties right mm-hmm. um, and so there are warranties that you expressly make and you got to think about those those are statements you're making and then there are implied warranties right so um, like I don't know somebody sells you a surfboard mm-hmm. well there's an implied warranty that it's fit for surfing right mm-hmm. we don't think about it, but there, when you go and buy products that are presented to you as here's a product to do a thing um, you, you can make assumptions about what that product is fit for. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would look at, you know, don't just take my language. I'd look at other dog training contracts and things like that. Um, but something along the lines of no warranties exp- expressed or implied. You acknowledge that dog training involves working with animals. And despite our efforts, we cannot provide any warranties or guarantees that your pet's behavior will change or improve. Uh, and then I added on there, but we'll talk about this later too. We accept no liability for your dog's behavior while under our control or in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just, you know, it's, it's like you're talking about teachers working with children. Um, mm-hmm. There's a third party involved, and this one doesn't even speak English. Right? Right. <laughs> There's a different set of instincts mm-hmm. than ours. 
Um, so, uh, you know, you can do your best and it's, this is why I talk about expressing what you'll accomplish kind of aspirationally, or like we've seen positive results in the past, as opposed to like, I'll make your dog perfect. Um, you know, I suppose people may be tempted to provide some kind of guarantees in the contract, mm -hmm. uh, as, as far as what's going to happen with a dog. Um, I would get advice on that. Um, you know, you could presumably limit your liability, and lots of companies do this or, or try to, um, to just the agreed price in the contract, right? That's the upper bound of what I owe you. Um, but you'd have to be pretty sophisticated about that. So I, I, unless you want to sort of get involved with lawyers, guarantees, warranties, things like that, I would expressly disclaim them. I would say you don't, you don't make any, and people should understand that. They're working with a dog that they're having trouble with. Mm -hmm. Um so the second thing, uh, I, I would guess another common disagreement uh, is folks thinking you agreed in conversation to something different than the contract says, either before mm. or after contracting, right? Um, just, well, I know it says that cancellation policy, but you mentioned you're casual about it, you know, so now I, so now I don't. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that actually can matter legally. Um, the way to protect yourself against that is that we have these weird words in law, right? We say execute a document. Well, sign it. I don't, what are you shooting it, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, so it, it's it's called a merger or an integration clause. Um, but I mean, here's an example. Um, so the party. So put this in the contract. The parties intend this statement of their agreement to constitute the complete, exclusive, and fully integrated statement of their agreement. As such, it is the sole expression of their agreement, and they are not bound by any other agreements whatsoever, unless made expressly in writing after the date of this agreement. Um, so this protects you against someone saying, you know, sure, we have a contract, but you promised me you'd stay open late, or that I didn't have to pay attention to the cancellation policy. And so, you know, you're talking about that time you let somebody off the hook, right? Right. People can develop, you know, if, you, if you're fine with the first time they're tardy, mm -hmm. then right. people have a tendency to go, well, okay. I can always do that now, even if the contract says something different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that that just protects you from that. I, the reason I have the, you know, less expressly made in writing afterwards is, well, like we talked about before, somebody thought they ordered a service. You say it's not checked on the contract. It's an extra 20 bucks. Do you want to do it? Um, you want them to be able to send you an email and say, hi, I'd like to add this service and understand it's $20, or for you to send them an email saying, I understand you'd like this is $20. Can you write back and say yes? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be a frozen document in time. Your relationship might evolve, but that just creates a clean path to change it. And one and only one way to change it. And it's gotta be written down if you're changing it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, that's, and if it's not written not, down, it doesn't count. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so the other one, and this is one that you should spend some time on is a, a limitation of liability clause. Mm -hmm. I looked at some different uh, dog training contracts, some that say, you know, we accept no liability whatsoever kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's fairly common in, in business contracts uh, to limit your liability to just the fees involved in the contract, right? So that's the, that's the upper bound. Um, so this is a little, just a little dry, but I can, I can read it. So here's a limitation of liability clause. Um, the owner agrees to the fullest extent permitted by law to limit the liability of trainer uh, to the owner for any and all claims, losses, costs, expenses, or damages of any nature, including attorney and expert witness fees and costs. So it goes on and on, right? From any cause or causes, so that the total aggregate liability of the trainer to the owner shall not exceed the fees set forth in this contract, right? Uh, so that's a fairly common, and limitations of liability, um, 
work in a lot of circumstances, and then there are some limits to where they work, right? This is why this one says to the fullest extent permitted by law. Right. So you can't limit your liability for intentional misconduct, for example. So like mm-hmm. you can't put that in there and then shoot their dog, right? That's right. Go. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. Well, I was going to ask you that with that limitation, like, you know, within like the limitation of the law, is that where uh, reasonable best practices as a professional come into play? Like if a dog trainer were to dangle the dog over a freeway of overpass, then no matter if somebody waived liability, it's because they signed up for dog training with the reasonable expectation that a dog trainer would never do this. Yeah, where that comes in in limiting your liability um, is uh, intentional misconduct. Mm-hmm. You, you can't for the most part for intentional misconduct mm-hmm. um and something you know and it, 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 <laughs> the doctor could say oh i didn't mean to dangle them over a freeway it's right. more complicated than that right it's um intent isn't just like i want to do it right it mm-hmm. can be sort of a reckless disregard for what will happen things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. um like texting but, while driving yeah th- things like that um mm-hmm. but so that's it's definitely included sure there are circumstances where it might not work um but they are ones where you're engaged in intentional misconduct um or if you bump into i don't know where this would come up with dog training there are um certain places you can't limit liability because it's against public policy like mm. like mm. power power companies are liable if they start your house on fire you know mm-hmm. <laughs> they can sign a contract with you that says they limit their life but no it's a the power company has to be liable for that i don't know that you bump into that though and so it's it's good to have a clause like that okay so, well, it's good to think in that direction, I think, is the, is the thing, you know. So, it, it, like, I don't, I don't want to make this analogy. It just comes to my mind. But, you know, we were talking about our dogs and the importance of removing a tumor. The, report, the importance of removing something that's potentially dangerous is to be extra safe with it. You remove a little bit around it as well. And I think that, that from a trainer's perspective, with a contract as well as a little bit beyond the contract, the point here is don't just do what gets you out of something legally Off do more yeah be better than that like best practices look at that as sort of a starting point right so i i yeah. think that, that probably part of the reason why the power company is held liable to that is most likely just so that they hold themselves to a very high standard mm-hmm. and they don't get a little laxed with it because because they know that they can be held liable so that they don't slack yeah yes yeah, yeah and it's also i mean in a lot of ways providing really high quality service Mm-hmm. Um, protect, first of all, your customer's happier with you, unlikely to sue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's, people forget that sometimes. It's like, actually, just keeping the counterparty happy is a way to protect yourself, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're providing really high-quality service, you're probably not going to fall below any standard um, that some expert witness could come and say, no dog trainer would do that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. as, long, as long as you're doing things sort of by the book and at a high level, um, that's probably going to keep you on the right end of the, whatever professional standards people say the community has. So, Got it. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, so, uh, fourth thing, uh, yeah, I think it's important to have a clause reserving the right to administer veterinary care uh, in the event the animal is sick or injured and to pass along those costs to the owner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, try to get in touch with the owner, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you need to be able to get an animal emergency care without worrying um, that you're going to be unhooked for the bill after. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so the fifth thing, there are other terms in some of the other questions we'll talk about. Um, so, for example, there's a thing called the veterinarian's rule that we'll come to and how you want to handle that. Um, having the client make representations about whether the dog has bitten in the past. Um, so I think we'll get to those. Um, 
you know, there are other ideas. You can, this is maybe a little complicated. It depends on the size of somebody's operation. A lot of businesses will have a contract that says, um, you know, this is a, this takes place under the terms and conditions that are on our website. Um, they do that uh, if they want to update those over time, right? Um, and that can be, you know, for, maybe for somebody boarding or something, that that can be helpful, right? If you need to change your operations in a way where the whatever the drop-off time needs to change or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then you can update it on the website. It updates for everyone, including people who are under existing contracts, kind of thing. And then remember to message that to folks, right? Mm-hmm. But that can, that can give you um, some flexibility. People could think about an arbitration clause. This is where instead of instead of going to court, you go to uh, an arbitrator who's just uh, a, you know like a retired judge or a lawyer or something, and sort of mm-hmm. sort it out that way, which tends to be cheaper. Uh, that's a lot to get into. You can Google arbitration clauses, and, and mm. there's good advice on whether that's the right idea. Um, and yeah, so there are the other ones we'll get to, veterinarians rule and all that. Um, I, I should just note also, I'm keeping this a little bare bones for small-scale dog training folks, right? Folks who might mm-hmm. aspire to have kind of a one-page contract or something. Mm. You know, if you're running a national business that's in multiple states, um, or even just a business that's in multiple states, um, you might have like a choice of law provision, um, a lot of contracts do this, right? The law of New York shall apply, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or the law of California shall apply, regardless of where the dispute takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might have stuff, I don't know, about how, like, notice would work, you know, who do you contact? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you if you Google example training contracts, you'll see some that have a lot of stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or no exclusivity, I have the right to work with other people. I, I don't think that stuff's terribly important for an individual dog trainer or a small mm-hmm. business. Um, but you can you can find that stuff. You could you could make a nine page contract. I'm sure that's that's what well, the I've way these. Them. Yeah, the way the way this happens is somebody's just worried, right? Right. And right. so they go and look at twenty different contracts, um, and they take every provision from every one of those that sounds at all good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they wind up mm-hmm. they wind up with an enormous document, right? Yeah. That's that's not that's not necessarily sure it's protective. Yeah. I, it's not necessary, and it may look weird to your clients. Yeah, it's just uh, like having how, a shopping cart of provisions, just in case. It, I might yeah. From an attorney who like has a dog. It's like your doomsday prepping. Yeah. From an attorney who has a dog, how off-putting would that be to you, like an unusually long contract? Uh, it wouldn't bother me because I know how it happens. Right? I, get, mm-hmm. like, I, I get it. Um, and there's, no, there's nothing that's... <clears throat> there's nothing that's being changed that I probably wouldn't expect or that couldn't... Mm-hmm. That, you know... Any to the extent to which the contract is overreaching in places, it could be overcome, right? And that's easier for me. I, like I'm a lawyer. I don't, you know, if I were bored and mad about my dog, mm-hmm. I could be pretty annoying. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So I guess this perfectly leads us then into the very next question, which is, what if the potential client disagrees with specific stipulations of the contract? Yeah. So I, I think non-lawyer folks are terrified of. Uh, editing contracts at all. There's some, you know, magic to it just being the template they downloaded. Um, I, I would look at it a different way. Uh, you know, if you, first of all, do you want the business? But I assume right. the question is they want to change something. You still want their business with whatever it is that's that they want changed. Um, it's fine to edit a portion of a contract that you understand, like where you understand what it does, right? Um, I, and I wouldn't mess with any terms that you don't understand or you don't fully grasp um, mm-hmm. what they'll do. So if you usually charge $60 a session, but you like this client, and you're happy to do it for 50 bucks for them. 
you can edit a copy of the document to save 50 bucks. That doesn't mm-hmm. break anything else. It just means it's just $50 now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, if you don't generally stay open late to let clients pick up dogs after work, but you really feel like this person is, is, is worth that, um, you can edit the term about what the pickup deadline is. You know, um, you understand what that does. But I, I bet you don't understand the terms about limiting liability or paying lawyer's fees well enough to feel comfortable comfortable going in there and messing with them, right? Mm-hmm. So I would I would think of it I would think of it that way. The basic business terms um, and your sort of self protective policies you you can you can edit those. I would add one thing: you have to remember you did it. Yep, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you got a copy of that contract. Yep. Yeah, you got to have some way to remind yourself. Um, this is a really common way for businesses to screw up, where they have a form contract, legal approved it. You talk to operations, like the people who are actually delivering the service, and they're like, yes, we can do it on those terms and all that. Uh, and then there's some salesperson trying to make commissions who goes along making little tweaks to what everyone thinks is a form contract for each client to mm-hmm. get the sale done. And then one day that client calls and goes, where the hell is my Saturday delivery? And mm-hmm. ops goes, as a company policy, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And the client will go, this was one of the things we specifically negotiated. This is why we went with you. And you open mm-hmm. up the contract, and it's right. Mm. So what are you doing now? Are you going to change your operation, at least for that? <laughs> right. um, so if you're going to do it, because you'll get used to your contract and the way it works, mm-hmm. right. if you're going to make tweaks, you have to have a way to remember that you did make a tweak for that person. Yep. Um, and that's that's it. But yeah, you can price things like that, what, how you want to describe you know, the services you're providing. It, it, those things are okay. Just are you comfortable with it? Do you know what it does to change that part? And for a lot of things in the contract, you do. And that's fine if you still want the business. So another question that came up, I, I imagine is more from the angle, not necessarily of a contract from a trainer to a client, but from a training company to a trainer that they're hiring. Mm-hmm. How enforceable are non-compete agreements? Yeah, so I'm, I've litigated all over the country and all over the world, but I am a California lawyer. So that's, my, that's sort of the background and bias. Um, and it depends on where you are, which state you're in. Kind of a lot. In the case mm. of in the case of non-competes, um, so in California, and this is unusual, they're just not enforceable by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true even if you're, you know. So, like, I worked for an entity that was based in New York, and there was a non-compete in my contract. I'm a California employee. That thing's void. It doesn't mm. matter. Um, California's a real strong public policy against non-compete agreements, mm-hmm. um, and the same goes actually for non-solicitation. Um, which is a sort of a lighter version where it's you can't, you know, say your employee leaves, non-solicitation agreement would say they can't come and solicit any of the other people who work for you. You know, people mm-hmm. leave as groups from companies sometimes mm-hmm. and they can't solicit any of your existing clients, right? So that's a typical non-solicitation. Um, also generally unenforceable in California. Mm-hmm. That's different from confidential information stuff and that that you have to pay attention to. Right. Um, so the fact that you can compete or maybe solicit clients doesn't mean you can release a client list or anything mm. like that. Right. That mm. that stuff is closely protected in no small part because the other stuff isn't in California. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there are exceptions uh, on non-competes in California that could I could see coming up um, for dog trainers. Um, and if you're like in this space, you should get advice and all. They don't just rely on me. But um, you know, if you if you own a part of a business or all of it, and you sell it to someone. Um, courts then may enforce non-compete because you're selling the goodwill. Yeah, right? They're not buying your client base and your brand name and all that for you to reemerge as one of the key figures down the street. Yep. 
yeah. the major competitor across the street. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so non competes do work there, but if there isn't some question of like equity involved and all of that, mm-hmm. then basically no in California. Um, other parts of the country have very different rules on that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, most places do allow them in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone who does uh, that I know of, every state that does that I know of, uh, has come around to requiring the non-compete to be reasonable in time and geographic scope, given the nature mm-hmm. of the employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, in most places, say you bring in a cardiac surgeon to, you know, anger a group or something, and they're on a, whatever, two-year contract. That's renewable. Um, you can probably put a one-year non-compete with them within 50 miles of your hospital, mm-hmm. right? But you probably can't do 10 years, and you probably can't do it all over the country and push them out of their profession, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that becomes a factual question in different places. But in California, the answer is generally no. Yeah. Uh, but there are, there are other states that, that well, do permit them. They have to be reasonable. Yeah, well, here's, here's a common one. And so I, I want to hit this from a couple different angles. I always like to understand the intention of the other side, because right now we're usually dealing with the people who signed the non-competes and then they're scared that their previous employer is going to come after them. Right. Mm -hmm. So can we start first? Like if I, if I'm a business and I want to get my employees to sign up, what is the intention? What is the whole purpose? I, I know it can seem a little obvious, but like, what is, if you can explain it in more detail. Yeah, sure. So I mean, you're, you're, and this is where the confidential information thing comes up. For one thing, you're exposing people to your confidential information, right? That mm-hmm. may have that are your trade secrets that may have been a lot of work to develop, like a client mm-hmm. list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a non-solicit isn't it doesn't tend to be enforceable. Um, so you know if you happen to solicit some of their clients, they tend to not be in trouble. On the other hand, if you took their client list that's their trade secret and you're contacting all of them, like ones you didn't mm-hmm. know before or not finding randomly, mm-hmm. um, then you can get in trouble. Um, and that's to sort of make it safe for businesses to hire people who might not stay forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and businesses, they're also training you. They're introducing you to their clients, mm-hmm. to how the field works. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they don't want is for someone to come into the market, develop a name based on their platform, mm-hmm. learn the trade based on skills they're giving that person, um, and then walk down the street and take a third of their business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the intent of a non-compete. That's what it's for. Um, California, very freedom to work kind of state um, mm-hmm. in in that sense, not the yeah. labor law union busting sense, but like you know, individuals' ability to perform their trades is an important part of public policy. So it's so. An, in in essence, it's it's almost like a sort of copyright protective type thing to where this business has built and established these practices and is willing to teach them to you while mm-hmm. paying you to learn and, and improve as a, as a professional. Therefore, businesses want to have a reasonable understanding that I'm not going to spend nine months teaching you and the, the second you're done, you just leave and mm-hmm. start your own business. That, that's, that's what they want. In California, right. you kind of generally can. But again, you have to be real careful about the confidential information part. You can't just right. go through and use their client list or anything. And no small part, because that's really the loan protection um, right. that a lot of these businesses have in California because of the other rules. Um, so, of course, are aggressive about that particular protection. Yeah. And I, and I can understand that. I guess I guess a comment I just want to make, it's, I'm just thinking out loud here, is from a, from a dog trainer business's perspective, I suppose that's why things like assistant training uh, positions where you're going to be taught lots of valuable skill sets typically partially come at a lower wage 
to to mm-hmm. kind of offset from the from the business's perspective of like, listen, I understand you want to make good money, you want to be a dog trainer, and obviously you want to make a living. However, if I'm going to teach you these things, I do think it's reasonable if we agree on a lower wage because you're benefiting other than monetarily, as well as typically lots of assistant training positions and things of that nature come with duties and responsibilities outside of training. You've mm-hmm. got to clean some kennels. You've got to do some yard work. You've, you've basically got to help the help incentivize the business to want to build you mm-hmm. as opposed to paying thousands of dollars to a dog training school. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess I just wanted to say that. Yeah. I mean, this, this, uh, the dog training thing, I always got to remind people, it's like, it used to be a master apprentice relationship and, mm-hmm. you know, now it's like, we have to pay for our apprentices. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the hard part. You know, it's like not the Which old blacksmith find, model where like, <laughs> I actually find reasonable. I, I've met with, with, so when I first moved to Phoenix, cause I'm from mm-hmm. LA too, Paul, that's how Brent and I know uh, each other. Mm-hmm. And I moved uh, to Arizona maybe five years ago at this point. And Brent and I've known each other for like mm-hmm. what, 12, 13 years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when I first moved, naturally, as a dog trainer, I I didn't I couldn't take my clients with me, so I had to start at square one. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily, as someone who had kind of built a business once, I was able to do it again, and I was able to do it much quicker this time. But in the interim, I was I was researching like where can I make some money, and I had looked into interviewing with some dog training places. Uh, you know, one of which we've talked about in the past. I don't name them ever, and it was just something I found interesting was they. They wanted me, like we had already met and done an interview and they asked me questions about my experience and everything else. Uh, and they were happy enough with it to want to move on to the next stage, which was a one month long, uh, like, you know, 40 hour work week uh, for one month. Um, unpaid? Unpaid mm. internship where I'm working dogs with them basically so that they can get an understanding of how good am I. And I can understand on the one hand from a business's perspective, but on the other hand, I'm, in, I'm applying because I need money. Yeah. So I, I found that to be a little interesting. And ultimately, I didn't end up working with these people. Mm-hmm. But stuff like that is why I can actually understand, though it is an apprentice master mm-hmm. sort of deal. And though dog training is so personal with how you teach. Yeah. And I can understand that, that having someone to learn from is extremely important. There should I th- I th- I'm okay with there. Oh, being, yeah, yeah, no, uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pay people. I, I know. I know you're I not, just, but, but just, I'm just putting you know, it out there. I'm just you know, saying historically, like, it was of course, a master of course. apprentice relationship. Yeah, I'm yeah. just putting it out there that like I'm okay with paying. However, I do think it's very fair to pay a bit less because of what you're learning and what you're earning and what's going to become of you because of the time I put into you. Yep. Yeah, it ain't easy teaching people. I'll tell you that. So let's yeah. uh, before we take our next commercial break, let's jump into the last the last half of that question. So first, it's like what what was the reason? Or if I was a business, why would I want to not compete? Makes complete sense. So a lot of our listeners, maybe they worked for some some box company, right? Or they worked for a chain, or they worked for something. Um, and you know, the, the the thing is, as as certain companies get really big, or they get uh, super popular. It's really hard to manage quality control. So a lot of trainers, they tend to leave companies because they go, they lost their edge or they're not they're mm-hmm. being mismanaged or they're mistreating dogs or I can't believe that they get away with doing X, Y, and Z. So you get a lot of these really great employees and dog trainers who leave uh, because they're horrified and they're just, but they signed these non-compete agreements and they left these companies because they're like, fuck, I can't believe they get away with doing stuff like that. Uh, behind closed doors and they develop clientele they develop you know people who like them and love them and all that stuff but then they're even scared to tell their own clients like Mm -hmm. hey i'm leaving you know what i mean because they they're they're worried that that's gonna affect their non-compete so 
Can you educate us a little bit more in that particular context? Any advice or, or content or like it, wisdom you yeah, give us? Yeah, sure. well, it, um, it, this is one of those things where it really depends on what state you're in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's tough to give general advice, right? Yeah. Um, there are, I, I haven't looked up Arizona law on it, but knowing mm-hmm. its business climate, I assume they do tolerate non-competes, right? Mm-hmm. Um and uh, it's just not true. If you Google non-compete in California, you'll get a statement from the Attorney General of California reminding businesses that they're just a non-starter in California. Mm-hmm. So I say, so you would, you know, talking to a local attorney is a decent idea. Just Googling the rules around, you know, there are articles and stuff for, for most states um, on, on how it works in your state, right? Um, non-solicitation is even more, well, usually folks just put, non-compete and non-solicitation and confidential in any employment contract, and they just mm-hmm. use the same language all over the country, not mm-hmm. caring that two-thirds of it don't work in California, right? Um, so I would say that. Don't assume that what your employer put in the contract even works under the law of your state, right? Particularly mm-hmm. if it's a big box company, mm-hmm. right? Um, represented a lot of companies in California. Some of them just use their standard contracts nationwide. Um, others, there's a home security company, the biggest one, um, that I worked for for a long time. They just have a separate contract for California. And I don't mean they have a separate contract for all 50 states. I mean, they have a contract for 49 states, and then they have their California contract uh, (laughs) that has a different term because of certain economic regulations. So it's actually the economics of California. It's just different business for them. Um, And so you got to figure out... uh, What's going on in your specific jurisdiction around that? There are places where people could have a valid non-compete on you. Not Cali, but there are places. Yeah, I've noticed that. Well, in general, I've noticed that California's business climate, their economic, their everything is so isolated and so different from the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah. and, and just to lead us into the commercial real quick, um, uh, you know, it, it, let's say we are in a state with non-competes that are enforceable. I want to go over when we come back from the break ways that we can protect ourselves from the worst case scenario, if possible. All right. So let's go ahead and take a quick commercial break and we'll come back on that subject. See you soon. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to dog trainers podcast. You know, what's a great way to support this podcast by becoming a sponsor today with sponsoring the podcast. You'd be helping us make this show the best it can be and so much more. From hosting more local events, traveling throughout the country, and connecting with trainers from around the world. Ultimately, getting you, the listener, more of the content that you love. For more information, please contact us at dogtrainerspodcast at gmail.com or visit our Instagram page at dogtrainerspodcast. Thank you guys, and now back to the show. All right, you guys, again, thank you so much for listening to the Dog Trainers Podcast with our attorney friend, Paul Slattery. Now, just before the break, we were discussing non-compete agreements in various states. I know Paul's based in California, so his experience level is in California. And in California, non-competes are largely non-enforceable. However, in other states, like I personally live in Phoenix, Arizona, I tend to believe that they are more enforceable. And, And Brent was asking a question of, should a company try to come after you know an ex-employee for a non-compete or a non-solicitation violation what are some ways that said employee might protect themselves from potential liabilities yeah i suppose the first thing is before you make any decisions to figure out where you are 
uh, and to figure out what the limitations are, right? There are probably a lot of people in California right now who believe they're under a non-compete who just haven't bothered to look it up and figure out that that term doesn't count because they trust that whatever the company put in the contract works. Uh, if you are in a state that generally does allow non-competes, um, now this gets technical and this you might want to speak to an attorney about kind of thing, but the limitations have to be reasonable in time and geographic scope, right? Uh, and I wouldn't just trust uh, that you know some national company uh, has necessarily done that. Some of them will or have, right? But some of them don't. So figure out um, sort of what the contours are, what's enforceable, what works uh, in your state. Um, and then as far as protecting, I mean, you know, to protect yourself the most, figure out what the law is and figure out, you know, what the strength of their contract term and then abide by it. That's, mm -hmm. that's the best, you know, if you signed it, then abide by it. Uh, right. That's the best way to do it. Um, I suppose the thing that comes up a lot is sort of the um, defining the space of competition, right? Um, like how broad is that, right? Mm. And you check if that, that squares with the law of your state because if you're a dog trainer and it says you can't you know, who does individual lessons they say you can't do individual dog training lessons within 50 miles for a year um uh, you know under a state that permits non-competes that's that's probably probably enforceable right mm -hmm. you can't work with dogs at all like something that means you can't be a groomer um that's probably too broad that's probably not reasonable in scope right uh, particularly if it's not their their line of business so got it Okay, cool. Is so. <clears throat> what level of wiggle room is in there? I know you were saying like what's reasonable in distance and reasonable in time. If somebody wanted to figure out, um, you know, I, I left this dog training company six months ago and I'm under a non-compete for another six months, but I got a job in a city that's 35, 40 miles away. Would there be more or less a concrete answer like, oh, 40 miles, you're good? Or is it just kind of no, I recommend it's good, no, but it yeah, might be up to... You'd need advice. You'd need somebody who knows um, the legal market. Oftentimes, they'll specify. Like, the reason I give... Um, the, the reason I speak to geographic limitations is oftentimes non-compete agreements will specify that, right? Mm. It's You can't be within... You know, like, in the cardiac surgeon example, you can't uh, work within 10 miles of a hospital we own. Mm. Mm. Right? Um, and that's pretty typical. Um, and if there's just zero geographic limitation... Uh, I think in most places that doesn't work, um, but you'd really have to figure out um, what the law of your specific state is. Do you happen to know, so if a company has, so there are companies in dog training that aren't necessarily localized to a facility. Like there are box companies where it's like you come to one of our locations, right? But then there are companies that are like, we have a series of trainers that we contract out who train out of their own homes but we find clients and, and, you know, and basically connect it kind of like Uber and we take a, a certain percentage off the top. So if that company were to say, you know, I, I don't want you operating in the same, I don't know, city or zip code or whatever that I operate, but it just so happens that they cover like the entirety of L.A. How, how enforceable is something like that? Right. Well, if L.A., not right, because you're in California. Right. Um but uh, then I would start to get down to and somebody would have to do a sort of test case with them, right? Like, say you're in Idaho and they allow non-competes um, and they're claiming their non-compete covers anywhere they have anyone. Uh, right. That would be a, a state law specific question. Mm. Okay. Um, how so is, the, the, how the, the big broad answer is like, it depends on what state. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's hard to give. I, I, know. I was at California, which makes it pretty easy. Um, mm -hmm. It is hard because these are all... Um, 
you know, there's like statutory law, like when Congress passes a bill, yeah. and a lot of that just says, what's you know, the, it can only what's be the law far. in like the big states? So like New York, like what's the law there where non competes? Any any clue? It's been a minute, but I, I recall actually that they are enforceable in New York, and that it mm-hmm. is the sort of reasonable in, in scope and duration and mm-hmm. geography. Don't quote me on that. Mm-hmm. Not New York, mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. My, sure, sure, the sure. last time I touched one was maybe ten years ago in New York. Um, but it's it's uh, but again, so what I'm saying is there's statutory, look it up. <laughs> there's there's statutory law that's very specific, right? You can't yeah. release this kind of chemical, right? Yeah. That's different from this common law stuff uh, from courts, where it's a uh, well, it has to be reasonable in geography and scope and duration. Right? Yeah. That's not specific guidance. That doesn't let you know. Yeah. You can look at other cases, right? And there mm. should be attorneys who have written up um, articles on how it yeah. generally works in that state that will give you a summary of what the case law uh, has taught. But it is there's a sort of case-by-case element to the way common law from courts works um, that makes it hard. I don't, I'm not aware of any state that just says, okay, you can have a non-compete and the rule is 10-mile radius. Mm-hmm. It's, it's reasonableness kind of stuff because it mm-hmm. could be different um, for a dog trainer versus a cardiac surgeon versus right, uh, a plumber. A, versus a plumber. A, right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I guess my final question on that, then we can move on, is <clears throat> from the perspective of of you know asking for specific advice from somebody who's knowledgeable in your state, your locality, and so on. Do you find that there's a certain resistance or like a fear people have to reaching out to an attorney? And if so, what are some ways to kind of get people over that? They do. Uh, I, I think people worry, um, first of all, they'll just be really expensive really quick, and they won't have mm-hmm. any control over the fees, mm-hmm. right? Uh, don't be shy about that uh, in talking to an attorney, right? What you know? What is each thing going to cost? Um, mm-hmm. Can I set limits on that? Right? And attorneys mm-hmm. should be used to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even... I, you know, working for a big law firm for publicly traded clients or whatever. Yeah, they're happy to talk about what they think is a limitation up front or what the scope of their needs are. So just don't don't be shy. The attorney will not be surprised that you're asking about fees Price. and when they'll come in and how much. Like that's that's pretty normal. I think people are intimidated by that, or they feel stupid because they don't know already. Why right. would you, why would you? You don't mm-hmm. work in law, like that person does, and they should expect you to ask. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, so that's. That part's fine. Um, and I don't know how else. I, I guess we're not that scary. Um, you know, <laughs> You're a pretty nice just, guy, Paul. It's just another, another form of life, just another way to make a living. right? right. Um, and I think to think about the um, what could be the upsides, not just in avoiding liability or something, but also the comfort of knowing. There's a lot of stress when people feel like they're operating in potential gray areas or when they feel like they're operating with exposure. Um, and tidying that up could really give you some peace of mind. Mm-hmm. So definitely does. Definitely does. So I wanted to go in a little bit <clears throat> into incorporations and talk a little bit about, uh, kind of that type of stuff. Um, what it, so, so a lot of the, the common things that we talk, we had an episode, uh, it was called leveling up. And it was kind of like going from being a hobbyist into being like like either working for someone or if you're going to start your own business, how to protect yourself from liabilities. And we talked a little bit about LLCs um, and things of that nature. But if I could, could I just maybe just pass the baton to you and you kind of help educate people on what are the purposes of all of these corporation and corporations and things like that? Yeah, sure. So and I know we, we there was a. A question we talked about before, which is sort of what level of 
protection or talked about asking, which is what level of protection does a contract provide? So when you're thinking about protecting yourself from liability, one is all the contracting stuff we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another is dog training insurance or mm-hmm. dog boarding insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another is incorporation. So mm-hmm. what, you know, what's, what's incorporation? Um, the point of it is to protect your personal assets. Uh, we created the incorporation a very, very long time ago. Most common is limited liability corporation now for small businesses. Um, and we did that to encourage people to go into business and to take risks, right? Mm. To start a shipping business, to start, you know, whatever thing that could go wrong. Um, because before you could limit your liability by incorporating, uh, your business going under could and probably would mean um, losing your house, yeah, uh, losing your house and winding up in debtor's prison, which we also got rid of. That's uh, bankruptcy is one of the things America did to get away from the English debtor's prisons. Mm. Um, and so what incorporating so wait, they, does they legitimately had a prison they would yeah. take you to <laughs> no, yeah. just because you were in debt. Yeah. So you paid yeah. your fees. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. 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 People try to raise money to get you out kind of thing. Yeah. It's it actually was... not that surprising because we had indentured servitude for a while. Yeah. No, yeah. I know. I know. It's just one of those things now. It's like, remember when you used to overdraft like $50 on your bank account when you are 20s? It's like, imagine going to jail for that. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. yeah. No, you know, and they'd make deals with people to get them out of mm-hmm. debtor's prison to send them on a ship to some dangerous yeah. place or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was. Think of know. all the credit card debt in America. Like, there'd be a lot of people in jail if we still, yeah. had, <laughs> if we still had yeah. those. Yeah. Yeah. So what what happens when you when you make an incorporation, make a limited liability corporation, is um, the extent of what folks can go after, and there are, as long as you don't break some rules, but as long as you do it right, the extent of what people can go after is the value of that business, mm-hmm. and the assets that are in that business. Um, so you know, and the point of that is, you know, say you want to start a shipping business that may or may not work. I'm using this is all old English stuff, which is why I'm sure, using sure. transatlantic shipping as the example. Um, you know, all that they could lose is the ships if it didn't work and mm-hmm. lose their business. It didn't mean they'd lose their home and wind up mm-hmm. in debtors. So it, it limits the liability to the to the value of the corporation and keeps that away from your personal assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's the incentive for um, the sort of incentive for that as a public policy is to encourage innovation, is to encourage people mm-hmm. to start businesses, because mm-hmm. starting a business doesn't have to mean putting your children's home at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and why it's why it's good for you is that then it's just that's just self-contained. It's just the business sinks or swims, and a lawsuit could break the business, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're personally bankrupt and without assets. Um, and is it perfect protection? No. One, you do have to treat it like a standalone business. You mm-hmm. can't, you know, it's called piercing the corporate veil. But sometimes people will incorporate and then just treat it all like personal funds and make no distinction and not mm-hmm. treat that corporation like it's a standalone entity. Um, and that can wind up breaking through the protections of a corporation for, so you got to behave according to the formalities, you know, um, don't just use the business checking account to buy yourself cheeseburgers all the time, mm-hmm. um, or to pay your utility bills, you know, formally pay yourself out of that account and then use a personal account, kind of, um, that kind of thing. And there are also, um, uh, we talked about intentional misconduct before, as opposed to negligence. Um, and there are ways in which a corporation incorporating can't protect you from that because you've personally engaged in intentional misconduct as opposed Mm -hmm. to just negligence in the course of functioning for the corporation and then it does remain on the corporation got it yeah so i guess a more a more specific question then would be something along the lines of uh 
Can a dog trainer be held liable if a client's dog bites someone during or after completion of a paid training program? And should this verbiage be explicitly written in your contract? Yeah, so let's talk about this a bit because this seems like it could come up quite a lot. Um, dog bites, you, yep. Yeah, uh, you have to put together a few different bits of law or considerations to answer this question. Um, and I'll note that some of the rules can be different outside California, and I'll try to flag uh, where that might be true. Uh, so California is a strict liability state when it comes to dog bites, meaning that the owner is responsible for a dog biting uh, almost no matter what. Uh, if mm. the dog bites someone on public property or someone who is lawfully on private property, even not your own private property, you're just kind of on the hook as the dog's owner. Uh, there are some defenses. You said lawfully, like not like an invader. Not a, not a, yeah, so I was going to say there's some defense, like if somebody's trespassing. Right. Right. Um, but outside of that, um, you're largely, as the owner, just strictly liable. And what strictly liable means is somebody doesn't have to prove negligence. Mm -hmm. It's like you're the dog's insurer or something, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're, just, you're, you're responsible for it existing. Uh, if it did something bad, that's on you, right? right. Um, and um, that's true even if a dog has shown no prior signs of aggression, right? Mm -hmm. There are other mm -hmm. states that have sort of more of a, a negligence standard to start. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the sort of one bite rule kind of thing, where on the first bite, you're only in trouble if you were negligent. And then after that, you're strictly liable because now you're on notice. Mm -hmm. Um, that the dog can bite. California doesn't, you, just, you don't get a freebie. You're strictly liable, right? Mm. Um, and it's reasonable to remind folks of that in the contract. A lot of folks don't know that. Um, you know, it's just to say they're responsible for any damage caused by their dog to humans or property, uh, mm. whether when the dog is in your care or after that. Um, and they will be. I think that intuitively people think, well, if the dog bites when the dog trainer has it, then like that's on the dog trainer. Uh, right, the way right. it works in California. Um, but the fact that an owner is strictly liable for the dog doesn't mean a trainer can also be sued. Um, mm. and I think this confuses folks like the fact that one party is strictly liable doesn't mean another might not be also strictly liable or mm. liable in negligence. So this is why, mm. you know, say like if a member of a public falls at a park that's undergoing repairs, um, yes, they're going to sue the city and the city is going to have premises liability because the city owns that and they're just liable, right? They're also going to sue the construction company mm -hmm. and maybe the individual guy on site who screwed up, right? Mm -hmm. Like and, the foreman or whatever. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, so uh, the multiple parties can be on the hook to make that person who got hurt whole. Mm -hmm. And after that happens, then they can fight amongst themselves about whose fault it mostly was or if their insurance contracts or if their contracts allocated mm -hmm. liability. But like, you know, a lot of a lot of times somebody will get hurt and name three different entities um, that can be liable. Does, does this happen often, Paul? I, I, tell me if I'm wrong about this. I feel like another big consideration is there's a difference between being sued and being drugged through the process and losing and that a small business that doesn't have lots of funds to commit to arbitration and things like that, even if you end up being right, you can still take a massive hit. So it's important to avoid being sued in the very first place. Yeah. This happens all the time, and it happens in a lot of different markets. Um, and I saw a lot of it being an expensive lawyer for big companies, um, which is uh, you know a massive company with a big stockpile of cash um, can just bring litigation that's going to take five years and cost $2 million in legal fees um, against a startup competitor that doesn't have $2 million. Mm-hmm. Even if they're right, 
you know. Right. Um, so yeah, it's staying out of court <laughs> should yeah. should be the goal, and lots of things get settled um, not because folks think that the claim is right, but mm-hmm. because they think they can afford settlement, and move on, and they don't think that they can afford drug out litigation, even if they're confident they would win. Um, right. Yeah, we don't have a. Other countries have a rule. Some people refer to it as the English rule, um, where the losing side pays the other side's attorney's fees. Mm. Mm. We we generally don't. There are ways to contract for that, but that's just the default rule in the UK. Um, whoever. But I think we said. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I think we said earlier uh, that that's something that you can stipulate. Like, like if if a, if a dog yes. were to bite somebody, you're you're not only liable for damages, but if somebody were to sue, you're liable for the attorney fees and what have you for this dog. Yeah, and that's that's something you can allocate in the contract. It's just not the default okay. rule. Um, right. But there are a couple additional points, like a going on the dog bite thing. Um, so there are sort of two ways a trainer might be, even though the owner is strictly liable, there are a couple ways the trainer, at least a couple ways the trainer might get brought in. Um, one is there are local ordinances. Um, Beverly Hills has one um, <laughs> that make anyone controlling or having care of an animal also strictly liable for any damage to property or to people. Um, so in Beverly Hills, if you're walking a dog, you're in the same position as the owner. It's indistinguishable. You're just you're also just on the hook, period, mm. unless there's some trespassing exception or whatever. Um, where there isn't a local ordinance like that, um, you could mm. be liable in negligence. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit. In very general terms, negligence is just uh, failing to exercise the care a reasonable person would in the circumstances, right? But again, dog training, mm. you know, it is a specialty. There are whole podcasts devoted to best practices and sort of, you know, standard of care kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, my guess is that a person skilled in the art of dog training, um, doesn't let a dog, they know nothing about off leash in a dog park on the first day. Right. But conversely, they might, if it's the 15th time they've been to the dog park, (laughs) (laughs) that's fair. Right. But, but on the other hand, you know, if it's the 15th time you've been to the park with them, you know a lot about the dog and it's interacted positive with other dogs in the past, you might let them off. Um, and so then that, that negligence just mm-hmm. becomes a factual dispute, right, about what what was reasonable um, for a standard of care or whatever. All of that is about when you're in control of the dog. And this question goes a little further than that. You know, it's like, what if they bite after or something? Um, that's, a, that's a tougher claim unless, you know, like say some, you train somebody, you train somebody's dog, um, and then a month later the dog bites someone. Bringing you in is going to be tougher unless you've screwed up in some particular ways. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you made some kind of representation that the dog would behave itself from that point forward, that's why I say talk aspirationally. We hope to. We've seen positive results in the past, not Uh we will get this. Or if there's any misrepresentation of um, what you did or your Uh qualifications, right? Uh Mm -hmm. So you have to be real careful how you couch anything related to the efficacy of your training. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the same goes for qualifications. Um, the same goes for the amount of like time you actually spend training with the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you say you're going to train the dog and then well, don't do anything while you're boarding it, right? And then the dog bites later. Somebody could try to use that um, yeah, sure. to bring a claim. And I should add, like, if you're going into the business of taking on dangerous dogs, and I know there are people who sometimes offer uh, like certifications. After they've worked with a dangerous dog, that is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of waivers. That's a lot of exposure. 
That's mm-hmm. definitely insurance, and you should get um, you should get advice on, like if you're specializing uh, mm-hmm. in, in that. So I, I wouldn't worry too much um, outside of any misrepresentations or anything misleading or making too many statements about efficacy um, about being brought in when a dog bites and it's six months later. Right? Mm-hmm. It's more about the dog in in, in your control. In your care at the time. Well, you know, I actually have a, a more or less California-specific question about a dog being in your care at the time. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, I don't want to, like, out a bunch of people or anything, but unfortunately, I'm sure you understand, dog trainers naturally follow this traditional scale of business. They get into their dog training profession usually by doing private lessons because it's very easy to get into. Sure. And then once they're doing well enough, they naturally want to offer more services and, and, and services that will attain a bit more, you know, dollar value per dog. So they start offering boarding, training, things like that. And in Los Angeles, inevitably, lots of people are doing it from a rental property that maybe maybe the, the homeowner doesn't know that you're doing this or wouldn't be okay with it. Or maybe you live in an apartment, uh, you know, and you have dogs there that you shouldn't because the rental property clearly states that I want to know who your pets are and their breed restrictions and what have you. Mm-hmm. So if you're building, because con- in, in LA, everybody's doing that with most things, right? Mm-hmm. You just kind of, you, you afford what you can afford and you live and you just try to build from there. Mm-hmm. And it's actually kind of rare, in my opinion, that people get to the point that like Brent or I get to where you can actually have a bespoke sort of facility situation. Mm-hmm. It takes years. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's doing something like that, even if they have a contract, should they stipulate in it, like, listen, the property owner and the managers and the whatever, like, they are also not liable, or would that negate a lot of it if, if they shouldn't even have had dogs there in the first place? Well, yeah, that then gets thorny, right? Um, I, um, I think limitation of liability clauses that protect you and that say that, you know, the owner is responsible for all the dogs are clearly good um, and would be some protection for the landlord and all that. Um, mm-hmm. Sure, include, you know, um, you, you can include, you know, owners of the premises or anything else uh, mm-hmm. in your limitation of liability. Um, there, there are ways that that could get, like, that's fine, do that. Mm-hmm. There are ways that it could get kind of thorny um, for you uh, if you have dogs where they're sort of not supposed to be in a, something that's not only, you know, you can imagine using this fact in a lawsuit. Not only is it not like an approved facility that's appropriate or anything, mm-hmm. it was in violation of the lease, right? Um, it could also get thorny for you if that dog hurts someone else in the apartment complex, right? Mm. Uh, and the landlord, you know, they were breaching the contract, right? Um, right. And that, that can cause a lot of trouble for you. Um, if you're sort of just violating your contract with your land, I appreciate that people do it and run the risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. I don't mm-hmm. really have many ways to mitigate that. Yes, good to have exculpatory sort of limitation liability clauses that are broad enough that they cover the landlord and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, could could something like a reasonable recommendation? I, I mean, I guess you don't have to say yes or no because I, I know none of this is like official legal advice. Let's be clear right, on that, yeah. everybody listening right, right now. Yeah. And, and I'll make a disclaimer, a separate one for the intro and the outro as well. Yeah, okay. sure. Okay. But but with that being said. Just like if you were like talking to a friend, would a reasonable limitation be like, listen, I understand you're making money and I understand you're trying to like grow your business and you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, but you are. Maybe if you live in an apartment complex, just flat out don't take reactive dogs or something like that. Like if you want to train a couple yeah, puppies. Don't do aggression. And like, yeah. like don't push your luck so much. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's not complete protection, right? But this right, is, I don't, sometimes people expose themselves to liability. Lawyers try to tell them not to, um, but that does happen in, in making businesses. Um, and if you're going to do it, <laughs> you know, you're, it's a little bit, you're skiing out of bounds, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and right. when you ski out of bounds, you become much more intensely responsible for being alert and aware and mitigating your own risks, right? Um, right. And yeah, if you're going to do it, if you're going to break the landlord's rules, aggressive dogs are probably a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Right, right. A cute little puppy where the landlord goes, oh, it's a puppy, and like forget, <laughs> forgets that there's a role. You know, it's, it may go right. differently, but you know, it's, it's be practical about that. Um, yeah, well, you know, and practically speaking, in, in LA and, and here in Phoenix, I'm noticing these mega apartment complexes with like, like 30 buildings in it and hallways and narrow passageways and elevators. So I think of things like if you're going to be working in an apartment complex, it almost looks like a hotel, then it's probably not the best idea to have a dog in your care that you have to take potty several times a day, mm-hmm. walking through hallways with tight corners and dogs can potentially like round the corner and surprise you mm-hmm. versus a puppy that you shouldn't have it, but it's not going to bite someone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, reason. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you know you're out of, you know, you're skiing out of bounds and you're, you're exposed, you could limit how big the, the problem could be is, is one Absolutely. is a reasonable step. So. And I think there's a certain wisdom in that because something that Brent and I discuss a lot with trainers, either on the podcast or just kind of person to person, is something you said before, which was don't don't uh, make the mistake of overshooting what you can realistically, reasonably do. And if you're just not in the position to take a reactive dog, there's no shame in referring a friend who's in a different position than you or maybe has more experience than you. And I think that it's one of those things, kind of like contracts and reaching out to attorneys, that it's good it's good for you and you should but it scares you so you don't and you just kind of like play with fire until you burn a little bit Mm. whereas a lot of trainers when they're new don't have much business so they they are scared to turn away what they do get and it just so happens that the more dangerous the dog typically the more intensive the training therefore the more money you make and because it's a longer term program the trainer thinks i've got four to six weeks of not having to hunt for my next paycheck and there's a certain comfort in it but we encourage people to look at it from a reasonable, realistic perspective of that, I understand, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like a freelancer, I get that you're kind of set for a bit. However, if you realistically, safely, or even just how much stress this is going to cost you, it's not worth it. Just keep hunting for the client that fits you and send this dog to someone who can do it. Later in life, maybe you'll find yourself in this position, but if currently you can't, be upfront with yourself. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's a risk-reward thing. Right. right. If somebody's willing to give you a long contract and pay you a lot for a dog. Right. It's possible that, that dog is more problematic than somebody who thinks they just need a session or two and won't it. pay you that much. You know. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. <clears throat> that's true. And so, I think one of the hard things about building a small business is is the the less you expose yourself, right? Like a lot of people get in the dog training industry because they want to help troubled dogs, right? Like like we some of us have a passion for like the shy ones, the bitey ones, the scared ones, like we want to help them. But just to be super frank, like it's really hard to build. If your goal is to build a business that is successful and is making income, those dogs take a lot of time, a lot of effort. They're high risk, high liability, and you can only get paid for so long and for so much uh, helping those dogs, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so it's kind of, yeah, what is, what is, what is the goal here? Am I building a business, uh, that eventually in a couple of years I want to scale or am I, do I want to do my passion projects where I'm working with these, you know, hard, very difficult cases, um, that come with a lot of risk. Cause you know, the cool thing is as we're talking about all these contracts, like, uh, my business has been open now for almost six years or five, five and a half, six years. Um, 
I can count on my fingers and all my toes how many times having contracts stopped conflict. Where I said, mm-hmm. actually, in this clause, you agreed to blank. And then they go, okay, fine, 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 fine. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I've never gone to court for any of this stuff. You know what I mean? Because we have good practices. However, I worked for another company for 10 years. I could count on all of our fingers and toes how many times, you know, the contract helped an argument. But there were times that, yes, uh, my old company did go to court and I did have to sit in, in rooms and I was asked questions and all of these things. Uh, good. Thank God we had we, we had a lot of success in the courtroom, you know, because we had best practices in play. Um, but man, I mean, contracts, uh, are, they're like a shield, you know, they, they can serve as a shield sometimes to, to help just, uh, when things go wrong or when things, uh, people want to misinterpret stuff, it's just clear, clear, clear terms. So, um, the mindset of like, oh, don't worry, I'm going to be responsible. Nothing bad's going to happen. Don't mm-hmm. worry. I got this, you know, it, always Murphy's law. Always Murphy's law, you know, like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And sometimes, especially when you're scaling your business, it's not even you, the one doing something wrong. You know, if you have employees, if you have other people handling dogs, something Mm -hmm. as simple as, oh, there's a flat tire or someone not showing up uh, causes this ripple effect that leads to a mistake three hours later. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you got to be super protective of kind of like your child, your business can be like your child, but you got to be protective. Mm-hmm. And so the things that I've, I'm, I'm taking notes on is three ways of protecting yourself. Make sure you have good contracts, which is what this, this was about. Make sure that you have LLCs that you incorporate. So at least you limit the liability that, that you can take those risks as a business owner. And then one that we haven't really touched a lot on is insurance. Sure. So, could we touch base a little bit on insurance? Sure, yeah. Uh, and I, I Googled a little bit. I, it seems like there's a reasonably robust market in dog training insurance. Um, we haven't talked about it as much, but it's, it's different. If you're training versus boarding versus group lessons, these are all different, and they're, they're different contract terms you might want. But there also mm-hmm. seems to be a fairly robust, uh, you know, like the Hartford offers mm-hmm. dog training insurance. Uh, and you should just shop around, uh, mm-hmm. see what everyone offers. And I think you may be surprised uh, it ensures against some risks you might not even have thought of, um, but that are significant, right? Uh, like what data breach, you get hacked mm-hmm. and you, you, all of your clients' personal, you know, you've got credit cards and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you, or you may, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you get a lot of trouble for that. And these are sort of general business risks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, uh, you know, it may cover, if, say you have a van that you use, right, for dog grooming or something that you, that you drive around in. Um, it, it, you know, that if you're doing, if you're driving it for the business, um, the general liability insurance, um, from getting sort of just dog trainers insurance may cover that. Mm-hmm. So I, I like, you know, I appreciate, I don't know what, well, I mean, so, I know, so, it's, so I, know co- it's a, I know it's a cost, right? You have to look at yeah. what your revenues are versus, um, how much that would cost you. But I, the, there may be a lot of peace of mind in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, everything, yeah, I mean, especially as a business owner, everything from workers' comp insurance um, mm-hmm. to, to liability insurance to, to a lot of things. There was this one. So I actually use the Hartford, and by no, I'm not getting paid by the way. I wish we were sponsored by someone, but <laughs> like, I, like Hartford has been good to me. Um, and uh, one insurance that I thought was really interesting is called Animal Bailey Insurance, mm-hmm. right? 
And so Animal Bailey Insurance, um, it, it sounds really dark, but it's if you needed it, if you ever needed it, I, luckily I've never needed it, but it's one of those things it's it's good to have. And really what it does is it, it any damages, be it that the dog does or that happens to the dogs all the way up to death, right? So like, let's say you could come up with like the worst case scenario. I had a dog and I've actually seen these on security cameras before. Uh, dog jump, breaks out of their kennel. Dog walks down the hall. Dog opens one door. Dog goes into another door and then eventually makes it outside, right? And let's say that dog goes down the street, gets hit by a car, and no one knew what happened because this dog just happens to be an escape artist, right? There's insurance that pro- provides you with protection and something yep. like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. Or a dog jumps a fence and uh, cuts cuts himself, you know, in a really bad way. Like, there's insurance that covers that. And, you know, again, luckily never had to use it, but it was one of those insurances when the when the agent was breaking it down to me. I was like, yeah, put that in the cart. Put that, <laughs> put that in the <laughs> cart just in case. I'll take a little um, bit. And kind of to your point earlier, it's like just, just having, not being exposed, not, not having these these or having these coverages in place like really really help in your confidence as a business owner or as a as a as a service provider so um that's really really cool so agree all right can i ask you we we touched on this a little bit toward the beginning of the episode but are there reasonable limitations or deal breakers to include in the contract from the trainer side of things so for example Brent was giving us a story of uh, he did a lesson with a client, gave them homework to work on, which was to be done before the next lesson was to be scheduled. He shows up to this next lesson to find out they haven't done any of the homework and then presents them with the option like, you guys, I'm not going to do this, but I can charge you for this lesson because I drove here and I've spent my time and I've scheduled this that could have been scheduled elsewhere, but you didn't do your part. So this this isn't going to like benefit you. So is it... Are there reasonable limitations or deal breakers to include in the contract from that perspective? Yeah, sure. I, and so I, we talked about it a little bit uh, before. Uh, I, I wouldn't think of them as deal breakers where a guarantee doesn't apply um, because I wouldn't really get into the business of making guarantees or warranties uh, when you're working with dogs. Uh, the problem with those is while they may encourage an owner, um, they can put you on the hook for a lot more later, mm-hmm. right, um, mm-hmm. by bringing you into liability. Um, but yeah, I think it's a great idea um, to include obligations for the owner in the contract that you need fulfilled for the services to work. Um, you know, you can you can include just sort of you agree in purchasing the services to commit to whatever certain number of sessions, certain amount of homework. Um, and it's a good idea, uh, you know, to um, have some of those where you can let yourself off the hook for continuing to perform future services if they're not if the client isn't living up to their end of the bargain. Um, you know, something like if a client fails to participate in the training program as set forth above, and you got to tell me what above is, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, trainer reserves the right to cancel the training contract at any time um, or with three days notice or sort of whatever works for you. Uh, the only thing I'll say is if you're going to do anything other than just prorate your services, right? Like say they bought five sessions and you're canceling after session three. If you're doing anything other than just taking the price, and charging them three fifths of it, you know, if you're adding any sort of penalty on top for mm-hmm. for the thing breaking up, 
Um, that has to be a sort of reasonable estimate of your costs or losses. There's this mm-hmm. idea, it's called a liquidated damages clause, where you say, in the event this contract is breached, you owe me $500, right? In the event mm-hmm. you back out, it, it's cancellation fees. You know, yeah. lots of consumer, your cell phone company or whatever else, and the cell phone companies, a lot of them, um, got in trouble for having cancellation fees that weren't linked to any economic rationality at all. It has mm-hmm. to be a sort. Right. It has to be a reasonable estimate of the actual cost or loss to you. Um, yes, less, I remember that. Yeah, less the time or energy saved. Um, so, like an example is the a forty-eight hour cancellation window. That's a reasonable liquidated damages clause because you're probably not going to be able to rebook that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but like, I can cancel at any time, and I'm charging you for all five lessons. Mm-hmm. Well, right. you save some time, and you're going to rebook at the end, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it's I, you know, I, safest is just prorated, right? Yeah. Um, and if you want to say, and you have to pay for any session that's closer than 48 hours or something, mm-hmm. um, that can make sense too. Although if you're breaking the contract, they're probably already mad. That's a good way to start a fight if you're, mm-hmm. if you're throwing more money at them. But it does it does have to be reasonable. Right? A six-month cancellation fee probably isn't, unless it's the kind of thing we have to plan for and you can't rebook even six yeah. months out. Yeah. You know, th- this this brings up kind of an impromptu question that's right on the same vein. Uh, tell me, Paul, if it's if it's realistic or if something that can be done if you were to cancel the trainer were to cancel a contract due to you know non-compliance on the owner's part is there a way to stipulate inside contract you know if the owner didn't do their homework and the trainer decides to cancel uh is there some sort of protection like i don't want a bad google review because you didn't do your Hmm, part good question um really hard to do that's free speech okay okay. Okay. that's that's really yeah to put them under sort of a no Yelp review NDA kind of thing. I appreciate I appreciate right. what you're what you're trying to do, um, but that that would be a difficult thing to do in a dog training contract to like prevent people okay. from speaking in the future. I know that that reputation is very important to an attorney as well as a dog trainer. What would what would be some reasonable protections then? Would it be like I notice in Google and Yelp if I'm reading bad reviews and and the owner responds, I read their response, and if it seems reasonable, then I'm like, okay, so this client's just being crazy. This is mad. Is yeah. it just something like that? Yeah, I I think responding to it right um and also just having um having reasonable conversations that keep things relatively peaceful with the client right of of course you know um there's a difference between um listen i I value my time and like what my work does a lot Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like you're in a place right now to um do the homework it takes and that's okay i'll I'll just charge you for what i've done um Mm -hmm. but i think we should cancel the contract um, you know, and maybe at some point in the future, you'll you'll have the bandwidth of the time and energy um, to put the work in to make sure that that my work delivers the value I want it to, which is why I do this. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's a difference between that and like you haven't done anything. Bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like, right. 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 There's a little bit of a customer service element to it. Um, right. It's like a best practice thing. It's yeah. like, well, don't 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 be a don't dick. Ins- <laughs> insult the person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, really. yeah. Actually. Right. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. I love this. Do we have any other lingering questions? We sort of do, but but the thing is, we've touched on a lot of them. Yeah, we like have by proxy. Yeah, and I just didn't want to waste too much Paul's time with it. So I'm fine. I guess yeah, there are, there are a couple other things we talk about, but you tell me. Well, I guess one I would want to ask because we've kind of touched on this from the perspective of like if I have a dog boarding and training in my facility and it and it you know bites someone mm. who's liable, so to speak. But a question that I have is directly correlated to a very popular, very successful, kind of newer, I guess, in my mind, mode of dog training, 
wherein a company hires lots of trainers who don't do boarding, don't do that sort of thing. They just do private lessons in home all day. They do four or five a day. If let's say one of your trainers goes and does a lesson and during this lesson, the trainer is bitten and requires an ER visit and stitches, who's liable? Do you as a business need to provide a certain level of protection for that employee because you've kind of sent them there? Do they, because they're them as a trainer have this reasonable expectation of risk or does the owner maintain that liability? Yeah. So there's the law as it sort of stands, which is the default if you don't say anything in the contract. And then there's what happens if you put a term in the contract. Uh, okay. So, And this is in California, although I think this is a fairly common rule. Uh, there's an exception to the owner's strict liability um, called the veterinarian's rule. And it applies mm-hmm. um, to more than just veterinarians. It's based on the idea of assumption of risk, right? You're, you're doing an activity here for a living um, that has inherent risks in it. Um, and you can't sue someone in strict liability when those risks play out. And this is the same, like firefighters can't sue homeowners when they get hurt in homeowners' homes because they're a firefighter, yeah, right? right. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're going to make a living as a veterinarian putting thermometers in dogs' butts when you can't explain to a dog why it's about to get a thermometer in the butt, there's a risk a dog is going to object rather stringently to that, right? Um, yeah. And that's a, a risk you assume. Uh, the same as this rule applies to groomers, dog walkers, vet techs, trainers, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, the strict liability doesn't apply. You've assumed the yeah. risk of that, of, of getting yeah. yourself bit. Um, there's an important exception even before you contract for anything. Um, and that is if the dog owner knew or should have known uh, that the dog was dangerous oh, and, yeah. and failed to tell you that mm-hmm. um, before you agreed to work with the dog, um, that, then, you may still have, then you may still have a claim. Yep, yep. Um, real real so, quick, so yeah. that happens a lot in this industry, right? Yeah, that happens yeah. a lot. So we get called for uh, house calls, right? And, you know, they say, oh, dog's leash reactive, right? And uh, we go in, we ring the doorbell, we walk in the front door, and Cujo's just fucking, rawr, 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 like, at your face, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people will just be like, well, we just wanted to see how you would handle it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're the professional. And so that gets really scary, right? And then especially if we board or do training, like some people will say, oh, the dog only has dog aggression. And then we find, you know, two days into it, uh, the dog is also resource guarding and the dog will also try and bite your hand or bite your arm if put in a specific situation. And, and you know, 85% of the time when we bring that to the forefront for the client, be like, did you know about this? They go, oh, my gosh, yeah, did he do that to you? Oh, you know, and yeah, those things are scary to find out. Like, thank God. Uh, you know, nothing bad's happened to my staff because we do have those best practices, right? Mm-hmm. But in my old company, yeah, things would happen on accident. We didn't know the dog was going to go off like that. Like, we didn't know uh, that that person would get chewed up that many times. Like, so a lot of the best practices and precautions and things like that that, that, that we put in, like, saves us and protects us from doom, you know? Yeah, from a contract perspective, I would include a checkbox. That yeah. just says, you I'm know, that, that that, 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 yeah, like the owner has represented to you that the dog has not bitten anyone or been the subject of any notices by authorities in the past mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Um, and if they won't check that box, um, then ask them for an email explaining what's going on. Like I need a description uh, before I agree of what's going on with the dog. Um, and that it's important not just because the sort of veterinarian's role thing, right? It's also important because a dangerous dog um, changes your standard of care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in dealing with the, yeah, it's reasonable to do something with a golden retriever puppy. That's not reasonable to do with a pity that's on its third bite. Yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to know, and you, you got to get a written, you know, a pretty good description of that. Um, mm-hmm. You can contract around the veterinarian's rule, by the way. Um, you know, you can state the dog owner will be responsible for the cost of any damages to property or injury to people, including reasonable medical expenses for you and your staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while the dog is in your care, um, some folks add compensation for loss of income. You know, you can't if you if you want to. Whereas if the dog bites you, and that means you can't work for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, employees are a little different. I, that um, as between sort of folks in the dog industry and their employees, uh, that's a workman's comp kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that mm-hmm. that goes down a different avenue, and you know, that we could get into. Can I ask you sort of an uh, sort of an off the cuff question? Because I'm asking you more as you as a dog owner, if you were to seek out training and you had a reactive dog, uh, there are there are two different ideas on reactivity with dogs if, of the trainers who take them on. There's companies that charge more because of the extra care and the extra risk and everything else, which I find reasonable. And there are companies that don't because they don't want to be seen as... Uh, they don't want to be seen as, as like discriminatory and, you know, and, and fear losing that business as a dog owner. If you had a reactive dog and they were like, listen, we're happy to train your dog, but we actually have a reactivity program. That's $200 extra per week. Is that reasonable to you? Yeah. I, I work as a lawyer, so sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I appreciate that other people are cash strapped. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think if you're going to offer that service um, and doing it safely and right increases your costs, um, then you got to charge more for it, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, high-risk businesses flying closer to the sun on the risks um, mm-hmm. to keep the prices more like the low-risk version of their business mm-hmm. uh, are, are, are playing a dicey game, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a common enough format. Right. You know, why does this hard, risky thing cost so much more than the normal version of this service? Um, Mm -hmm, It probably should. And if somebody is telling you it's fine, I can do it at the normal price. I don't know. How are they doing that? How are they doing that? Right. (laughs) Right. What are you not doing that the other facility does do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. Sure. Cool. Um,. I'm trying to think. Well, listen, Paul, I'm kind of, I'm going through the document here. And what I've started doing is like highlighting in different colors so that we know what we've covered already. And it yep. looks like we've covered about everything. I'd, I'd like to say just once again, for the people listening, understand that Paul is a friend who's helping us out as a friend. This is not official legal advice. Mm-hmm. Don't take this as gospel. Mm-hmm. Paul's recommendation is very simple. Reach out to someone in your locality, an attorney that's expert in the field, the specific thing that you're looking and speak with them. Yes. Don't get mad at Paul because he said something and it didn't work out for you, right? It doesn't work that way, mm-hmm. right? But you can mm-hmm. get mad. I'm just not your attorney. Uh, <laughs> sure. yeah. get, get mad if you want. He just doesn't want to hear about it. Don't waste his <laughs> time. Fine. So yeah. beyond that, I just I just wanted to say very quickly how much I appreciate it and how much yeah. this conversation has been insightful and informative. And thank you. Yeah. Any any other last tips or anything that you suggest, Paul? Yeah. I, I suppose leaving people with sort of what they can do next or if they have more questions um, mm-hmm. is important. Uh, I did, in poking around, find a website called dogbitelaw.com. Uh, mm. It seems to be a Beverly Hills attorney. I, his name is Kenneth Phillips. I don't know him. Uh, I haven't mm. worked with him or anything. I, I can tell you he's in good standing, and his free content makes sense. Uh, and he sells for pretty moderate prices uh, exemplar dog contracts and guides on how to sort of not get yourself in trouble 
Um, nice. And they're specific for dog trainers and things like that, and they, you know various waivers. So that's one resource to look at. It is a pay resource, so maybe people don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other websites out there. You can Google dog training contracts, that kind of thing. Um, you will wind up with a 20-page contract if you read yep. all of them and add every term from every single one of them, right? Uh, but it's reasonable to have a look at those if you're going on your own and figure out what, what terms you kind of um, want to include. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would also keep in mind, you know, for group lessons, for boarding, for things like that, um, there's there's more to it than just dog training, right? If you're going to have a dog for a month at a time, there are probably additional mm-hmm. terms you should look at. Um, but it's uh, contracts that are presented to the public aren't trade secrets. There's no, there's no shame in stealing from them. Um, mm-hmm. You steal from prior good work a lot in law. Uh, mm-hmm. So go all the way to the contract page at a couple dog boarding places, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe some big ones that have good lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and see what see what they're doing. There's, you can just take the language straight up if you want. You, have, you know, you have to understand it, understand what it's doing. Um, mm-hmm. But right. it's a good way to get ideas uh, and to put together a reasonably solid contract to um, cheat off somebody else's homework a little bit. Yeah, that's great. It's called borrowing. Borrowing. No, no, Borrowing. we're not giving it back. We're stealing that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, copy paste. It's an infinitely reproducible good. They're not denying them go. the value of their yeah. <laughs> There you go. Well, we really appreciate you being on, Paul. Um, this was super informative, and uh, we got a lot of the questions that, that, that our listeners submitted for this interview, so that's great. Um, again, we want to thank you again for being on. Um, yeah. This is, uh, I don't know which episode of the podcast. This is a very special law episode yeah. with Paul Slattery. That's okay. Uh, we stopped keeping count of what episode number this is. Uh, but anyways, we are so happy that you guys got to listen to this. Uh, but we will – actually, let me ask you this, Paul. Is it okay if we kind of uh, draft up some notes and put them up on the internet uh, just as like basic reference? Would that be all right with you? Yeah, I'll take a look at them if you don't mind. But sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, sure, course, of course. 100%. 100%. And um, – uh, so we want to be able to put a resource page up on the Dog Trainers Podcast website. So uh, by the time this episode comes out, we should have some type of document up there just to be a reference material. Again, it's not uh, it's not uh, how you should format your contracts, but just things to think about. Maybe ways of how to think about how you're proposing your own contract. That would be that would be not what what they should have in the contract, but how they should think about what they put in their contract. That sure. might be helpful. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool, guys. Well, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, Paul, thank you again for coming on. My name is Brent Labrada, and that guy over there is Mariano Alvarez. And we'll see you guys on the next one. Peace. Beautiful. Paul, when we finally meet in person, around on me. I appreciate this sure. very much. Yeah, this is, this is great. This is great. Yeah, so I think I think for this document, instead of us just throwing it on there, maybe uh, – it kind of already is like I would think about it this way. Like it's already formatted <laughs> like that. So is this document cool the way it is or do you want to? Well, I think you wanted to play with it to, to play with the verbiage a little bit, yeah. which is fine with us. If you want to just look at it, adjust whatever you want to adjust that you're comfortable with. And again, we won't put your name on it yeah. anyway, Yeah. but feel free to play with it on your time and just let us know when it's done and, and we'll, we'll, we'll post That'd it. That'd be amazing, man. I, I do like the funny tone in it though. So don't, I'll leave, don't make, I'll leave don't, make don't make it too uh, stiff. Yeah. Don't I'll make leave, it too yeah, stiff. Yeah. No, I'll leave it. I'll leave it a little bit. Cause dry. we want to, we want to call it like advice from an attorney friend or something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. 
like fireside chat or something. Sure. Yeah, we'd be like, be like yeah. drunk with our lawyer friend. I was joking. It's not quite noon. I'm open to that podcast, too, though. If you wanna, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> awesome. Whereabouts do you live? Venice Beach. Um, Venice Beach, perfect. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm in real, L.A. Real, real close to Rob. So. Oh, very cool. Well, I'm in L.A. I'll, I'd love to take you out to lunch on, on both of our behalves. Um, Absolutely, man. Well, listen, we're, I'm going to be out there in a few weeks yep. because Brent and I are going to go do a cool event in Santa Rosa for training. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I'd love to get together and do a lunch, man. I'd, I'd love to you know, just, just make the connection and make a friend. That'd be cool. Yeah. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, I've got uh, five weeks of radiation therapy, four days a week for the dogs. I'm not going fucking anywhere. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds great man well we'll plan that out we'll shoot you a text and we'll keep you in the loop I appreciate this again so much and, I, and thanks man have a great day All right, yeah, take it. care thanks guys thanks. thank you for listening to the Dog Trainers Podcast a podcast created by dog trainers for dog trainers or anyone who's ever fallen in love with man's best friend we really hope that you enjoyed this episode and can't wait to be back with you guys. Be sure to follow us at Dog Trainers Podcast on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to punch the hell out of that subscribe button and leave us a review. Remember, guys, this is your podcast. You're the best listeners in the world, and we'll see you next time.